Let's pray and we'll ask God to speak to us. Father, uh, as always, we've been singing about the fact that you are worthy, Jesus. You're worthy of your name, Savior. And because of that, we come to worship you this morning. We, we want to make you a very practical priority in our weeks. And so thank you that we can gather here together with others this morning. And we pray, God, that we would hear from you. The words that I'll be speaking are just human words, but it's amazing, God, how sometimes you can take your word, the scriptures, and you bring them alive in us and you impact us in ways that literally only you can. And we would ask you to do that this morning. Thank you for this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to start with a question. When do you think children are first able to lie? The old answer was as soon as they could begin to talk. That was the old answer. But it turns out actually to be earlier than that, and I'm not kidding. Uh, there was a study done at the University of the Sacred Heart in Tokyo. And in this study, they discovered that babies who cannot even talk yet learn to cry when they are not distressed. And they do this just to get their parents to give them attention. And uh, when the parents fall for that, these cute little babies are laughing at you in their six-month-old psychopathic souls. <laughs> and then as soon as children learn how to use words, turns out they use them to lie. But they're actually pretty bad at it at first. Take a look. John, what are you eating? Okay. You didn't eat anything. Yeah. John, look at mommy. Anything. Are you telling me the truth? Yeah. You didn't have any snacks? Nope. Let me see. You don't have any snacks. Open wide, let me see. Really, you didn't have any snacks. John, come here. John. Can you explain to me why, why the sprinkles are empty? Well, you're not empty. John, look at me. You're not empty. Did you eat those sprinkles? No. You know it's not nice to tell stories and to lie, right? Look at mommy. You're not supposed to lie. Tell me now. Did you eat those sprinkles? No. I did not eat sprinkles. John, hmm? you have sprinkles on your face. Guilty. Yeah. Where do these little people learn how to lie? Well, they learn it from big people, of course, right? The most famous study on deception uh, done in our day found that the majority of adults lie two to three times in a typical 10-minute conversation. That's a lot of lying. And I'm not lying. That's a real study. So, <laughs> Did you know that lying is found in every culture that's ever been studied, that's ever been discovered, that's ever been known? Every culture. We lie about our motives. Why did you do that? We lie about why we were late. Why were you late this morning? It was my child. 
We lie about what we really said. We lie about our taxes. We lie about our expense accounts. We lie on our resumes. We lie to our spouses. We lie to our children. We lie to our bosses. We lie in the games that we play. What did you get on that hole? Put me down for a five. I really shot a a six, but you know, uh, I'm, that number makes me kind of uncomfortable and it would make me probably uncomfortable to say put me down for a four because a four would be a big whopping lie and then I would look like a big fat liar so put me down for a five a Goldilocks lie not too big not too small just right put me down for five and that is the sad human condition right there we want to speak the truth I think we do but we're prepared to lie if we think it'll help if we think it's necessary. It's like the little girl in Sunday school who said, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in times of trouble. (laughs) And so we lie to get stuff. We lie to sell stuff. We lie to impress people. We lie to get out of trouble. We lie at church. We lie in politics and we lie in social media. One researcher said, and I quote, that the number one finding when surveying people about lying is people lie about how much they lie. (laughs) That's a quote. Now, here's the deal. God knows all about this. I was thinking this week, every lie we ever tell is as ridiculous to God as that little kid, Johnny, with the sprinkles on his face. Every lie we tell, that's how we look to God. No, I I didn't lie. Not lying. You have sprinkles on your face. Nothing, he says. Nothing. There's nothing there. Hey, Adam, what have you been eating? Nothing. Nothing, Lord. It's the woman you made. It's the serpent. Now, because of all this, we're told very early on in Jesus' ministry that Jesus knew better than to trust people, than to believe everything they said. In John 2, we read these words. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and they believed in his name. They were becoming followers, but it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men and he did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man and he knew that one day they might believe in you but the next day they might not no one needed to tell jesus about human nature he knew that was he knew exactly what was in each of our hearts in other words you can fool some of the people all of the time and you can fool all of the people some of the time but be clear on this you can never fool jesus not ever Anytime anybody lies, we look to Jesus and to God like the kid with the sprinkles on his face. Now, Jesus talks about our words and this thing of truth-telling in the Sermon on the Mount, this thing that we've been studying for some time, and his words are very interesting. You know, when he talked about anger, he began with the Ten Commandments. He said, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder. And he did the same thing when the week that we looked at him talking about sexuality, you shall not commit adultery. And so we would expect in this truth-telling area that he'd go back again to the Ten Commandments and talk about the commandment that says you shall not bear false witness. But that's not what he does. 
In fact, he, be, he actually begins in such a different place that this is probably the least talked about section of the Sermon on the Mount, this section that we're going to look at this morning. And this is actually what he said. He said, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now we read those words and we wonder why in the world would Jesus care if people are swearing uh, on Jerusalem or uh, in heaven's name? You might be thinking to yourself, you know, I don't ever swear um, by heaven or swear by Jerusalem or swear by earth or swear by my head. So I must be good on this when I can go home. Well, I'd beg you to reconsider. Sometimes people have taken Jesus' teaching in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, they've taken it very mechanically, almost literalistically. And so uh, they refuse in general to take any kind of oath whatsoever. Uh, they will not go into the military because when you enter the military, you take an oath. They will not in a courtroom of law, uh, they will not take a, a formal oath in a courtroom uh, or do anything that requires oath taking. But understand that actually misses Jesus' point altogether in this text. That's not really what Jesus is driving at here. Although if you just read it on the surface and knew little about the culture, you might think that's what he's saying. Now, remember, Jesus is showing us in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen this pattern over and over and over. He's showing us what true inner goodness or surpassing righteousness looks like, righteousness that's better than just the outside righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he's contrasting what surpassing righteousness uh, looks like in comparison to conventional wisdom or conventional practice in his day. And so to understand his concern here, we have to go back again. And it would be helpful just to go back to little kids. Uh, little kids, uh, they all lie, just like adults, they all lie. And so what do you do when you want to make sure that somebody really will believe you? that it's important they know they must believe you because if you can't get them to believe you, you won't get them to do what you want them to do. And so what do you do? Well, children invented this thing of a promise. I promise I'm telling you the truth this time, I promise. And a lot of times we'll add other things to make it more convincing. Cross my heart and hope that I stick a needle in my eye, I promise. And the point is you have to believe me now because if you don't, I'll have a needle in my eye and that'll be your fault, you see. So I promise, and here's the thing, every culture has a problem with lying. And so every culture practices this, things of, this thing of promise making or taking oaths. Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed in this, when he was um, studying through this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he said that oaths give irrefutable evidence of the fact that we all lie. The fact that you have to take an oath to convince somebody that you're telling the truth is proof positive that you have a problem. I have a problem with lying. Now, 
An oath generally invokes something sacred. I mean, you're calling on something sacred to you to prove that you're telling the truth. In the ancient world, an oath might be, you know, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if I'm lying to you. And today, even now, we'll hear people say things like, well, I, I swear on my mother's grave. I guess your mother is sacred to you, so you would swear on her grave. I swear by, by all that's holy. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear to God I'm telling the truth. And the point is these same kinds of oaths were around in the ancient world, just as they're around still Today, Israel was taught to make oaths in the name of only God, only their one true God. Deuteronomy 6 says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Something sacred, you see. And often they would acknowledge God's presence with the body by just raising their hand when they took an oath. In fact, in Genesis, it says, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath. That's where that practice comes from. And even to this day, if you go into a courtroom, uh, you will often be asked to put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. And they will say, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And you'll say, I do. Now, in Jesus' day, a devout Jewish person would often refrain from using God's name. They didn't want to uh, besmirch his name in any way or misuse this sacred name. So they would substitute something for the name of God. And they would make their oath, you know, in the name of heaven or in the name of earth or in the name of Jerusalem. But it was the same idea. And that's the backdrop, actually, of what Jesus says here in this text. And as usual, Jesus goes to the very heart of the problem with this whole oath-making and oath-taking system. The problem is we don't tell the truth. And so then we end up using pressure and guilt and spin to impress people that we really are sincere. We really are telling the truth. Oh, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. You can believe me. And Jesus understood the reason why we use oaths and make promises. I swear, I promise, it's the gospel truth. We are desperate to get other people to believe what we want them to believe. And so, you know, to get them to do what we want them to do, we'll say, I promise. Now, therefore, you see, instead of simply saying, Here's the information. Here's the answer to your question. You decide whether you think it's true. We will try to get them to believe the truth using an oath. I want to pressure you. I want to manipulate you. I want to get you to believe me at any price. And so swearing an oath in this passage that we just read, it's just one example of how you can go about spinning the truth, using the truth through the practice of a lie. Now, in the Old Testament, lying by the use of oaths is condemned. Uh, in fact, uh, oaths in the ancient world and in the Old Testament times were really kind of just a training wheel kind of situation to help people get on the path of consistently telling the truth. It's like God is saying, okay, if you have to, you can swear, but only swear by my name because I am, after all, the most holy thing, the most sacred thing by which you can swear. But in Jesus' day, people were substituting Jerusalem and the earth. And I swear by my own head, my, my own health, my own life, you know, this is true. 
And the problem was they were lying when they swore. And then Jesus comes along. And as we've seen, when Jesus comes along, the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom shows up as well. And so now it's time, you see, to take off the training wheels. Let's, let's be done with the training wheel stuff. And Jesus taught that loving my neighbor means that I honor you. I respect you. I don't try to pressure you. I don't deceive you. I don't try to manipulate you. I let my yes be yes and my no be no. I live in and I speak the truth and I let you decide. I let you decide. I don't try to get my way because, you know, I've abandoned my will and my way to God and to his kingdom. Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come. I'm living in the freedom of your kingdom and your will. That's what I'm supposed to do if I'm following Jesus. You see, you can tell somebody the truth without loving them. You can hammer somebody with the truth sometimes, can't you? But you cannot love somebody without telling them the truth. And kingdom rightness respects the need of human beings to make their own judgments and their own decisions to come to their own conclusions solely from what they have concluded is best. And so I tell you the truth, that's loving you. And I do it gently, I do it with grace, but I tell you the truth. I don't try to manipulate you with oaths or promises or lies and I let you decide. And that's the kingdom way. According to Jesus, that's the loving thing to do. Now, I want to shift gears and I want to spend the rest of our time looking at how this played out in the life of the Apostle Peter. Very interesting character. This is one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter. Uh, and by the way, if you're feeling any guilt or shame around this subject, you might actually be encouraged to know the Bible is full of liars. Is that encouraging? Full of liars. Adam and Eve. Liars, Cain, liar, Abraham and Sarah, both liars, Moses, Aaron, liars, Isaac, Rebecca, liars, Jacob, Rachel, liars, David, Samson, Herod, Ananias and Sapphira, all liars. Liars are all over the Bible. So we're in good company here, okay? But maybe the most spectacular lie in the entire Bible comes from the man on whom Jesus said he was going to build his church, the apostle Peter. It was the night before Jesus died and he had already warned his disciples that every one of them was going to disown him. But Peter objected uh, rather forcefully and in a very boastful way, this is what Peter replied. Peter replied that even if all these guys fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, do you think Peter was sincere when he said that? What do you think? I think he was. I think he was sincere. I think he meant what he said. I think he was probably deeply stirred in the moment. He understood that Jesus was talking about his own death and he felt strongly about Jesus. He felt strongly about his devotion to Jesus. He was probably quite convinced about his own sincerity. So let's see how this worked out. So fast forward a few hours. 
Jesus is on trial to be crucified. He's at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and he's being put on a mock trial, really, but he's being put on trial and accused of all kinds of things. Peter actually has followed Jesus to Caiaphas's home, and uh, Peter is sitting in the courtyard outside wherever, whatever room Jesus happened to be in where this mock trial was taking place. He's actually as close to Jesus as he dares to get. Just a little aside here. Do you remember what Peter had done when he was with Jesus in the garden there in Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested? Anybody remember? He cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. His name is Malchus. And then what did Jesus do? Jesus apparently picks the ear up or catches it in mid-fall or whatever. We don't know. But Jesus heals Malchus's ear. But do you think that Peter could be in any trouble carrying a weapon and assaulting someone with it? You think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a backdrop here too. So Jesus, uh, at this point, Peter is about as close to Jesus as he can get, sitting out there in the courtyard. And a servant girl sees him and claims that Peter had been with Jesus. This is what we read. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And notice he doesn't say, I never follow Jesus. That's, that's not what he says. Uh, the lie isn't quite that blunt. What he says is, I don't know what you're talking about. What a clever thing to say. Lying can be like that. Maybe he even convinces himself that that's true. I'm not really sure what she is saying or what she is talking about. You see, if you get good at lying, it becomes so second nature. You almost rationalize any act of lying. You could actually be offended if somebody accused you of lying while you're lying. Anybody here ever experienced that? Just me? You liars. You're a bunch of liars. I know you've experienced that. Come on, put your hands up. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, how did Peter go from I'm ready to die to I'm ready to lie? And here we come to the deep truth about lying. The only foundation for truth telling is my dying to myself. Let me repeat that. The only foundation for truth telling is that I die to myself. You see, lies are always about advancing myself. Lies are always about protecting myself. Lies are about my getting you to do something I want you to do for me. And so to be able to tell the truth no matter what, doesn't it make sense? I have to die to myself. And that means I have to trust myself to the care and the safety of God. I have to trust that God will watch out for me. I have to trust that he will care for me. He will protect me. He will work out his will in my life no matter what happens. But if I believe I have to watch out for myself, I'll always keep lying as my backup plan, you see. It's a tool. It might be necessary. Only if I trust that there is a greater reality, a greater kingdom than my own kingdom, can I let that go and can I tell the truth no matter what, you see. And here's the deal. Maybe you haven't thought about this in some time. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he calls us to live in the truth to live in that greater reality, the reality of his kingdom, which means that we are truth tellers, not liars. 
Even in the small things, we're truth tellers. This is kind of embarrassing, but it is my life. A few weeks back, I was seeing a doctor, an ENT, in fact, um, that had a sinus infection and it was going on and on and on. So I went to this doctor and when they check you in, they, they check your blood pressure, right? And they check your weight and things like that. But the scale they had was an electric one and it wasn't working. And so the PA, the physician's assistant said, do you know your weight? And I told her a, a number and I'm a little sensitive about my weight right now because I don't know if you recall, but uh, back in September, I, I broke my arm rescuing some children from a burning building. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and since that time, I've it gained about 10 pounds or so. But in that moment, when the PA asked me my weight, I didn't hesitate, I lied to her. I didn't even think about it, I just lied. I gave her the old number, right? The number is about 10 or 12 pounds lower than my weight. I figured, ah, next time I see these people, I will have lost this you know, blubber and I'll be down in my right weight, <laughs> which is 180 pounds. <laughs> see, well, one thing I would challenge you about is find the lies throughout this sermon as we go, okay? What's so awful about all this, honestly, is who cares? See, only me. In that moment, I cared more about my kingdom than Jesus' kingdom. I didn't even think about Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Nobody cares about what I weigh. This is such a foolish, stupid thing to lie about. And then I remember, remembered the basic prayer of a person who lives in Jesus' kingdom. And we're gonna get to that uh, down the road a little bit, but the basic prayer of somebody who lives in and walks in the kingdom of Jesus is your kingdom come, your will be done in me right now. And you see, if I cared more about Jesus' will than my will or Jesus' kingdom than my kingdom, then telling the truth about my weight is just no big deal. And so I confessed my sin to the, the PA, the physician's assistant, and she was so impressed, she became a Jesus follower right there. <laughs> ah, that's another lie. Here's the thing about sin, lying. It's very trivial. Sin is mostly about immensely trivial things. John, did you eat the sprinkles? Trivial. Dwayne, are you a fat blimp? <laughs> trivial. See, our emotions get attached to embarrassingly trivial desires and trivial achievements and trivial appearances and trivial recognition. Our getting our way about stuff that doesn't really matter, not really. You see, the truth is Jesus loves me even though I am a fat blimp. That really is the truth. That is the truth. I don't have to live in shame or hiding or deceit. I can die to myself. I can die to what I weigh. I can die to needing to impress people. I can die to living inside a lie. There is actually great freedom in dying to self and great grace in living in Jesus' kingdom. 
Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done. You know, it's in all the moments where I'm tempted to deceive that I discover where I really haven't yet died to myself. Where are you tempted to deceive? Death to self. It's really the only one sure foundation for truth-telling. Death to self. And this is what Peter's learning, actually, in this process. He lies, and then there's this encounter. We're told that then he went out to the gateway. So he's moved from the courtyard to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. It's so interesting. Now Peter's body begins to reflect what's happening inside in his soul. He leaves the courtyard and he moves further away from Jesus. He goes outside. He's getting farther and farther away. Each time he denies knowing Jesus. He's moving farther and farther away. It's interesting. There's all kinds of research on how our bodies tend to betray our lies. When people lie, they do things like cover their mouth. They lie like this, you know, and they kind of cover their mouth. Sometimes they cough. That's another one, a nervous tick that people have when they, that they lie. Sometimes they, they just cover up their, their core. You know, it's just, they just don't, as they lie, they don't realize it, but they're just kind of covering up or they might look in a different direction when they lie. Did you know how much I weigh? You know, and I'll tell you, but I'll look away. Did you notice in the video when the child, when John was lying to his mom, he didn't want to look at her. And she kept saying, Johnny, you know, look, look at me, look at me. Johnny didn't want to look at her. Here's the thing, lying fractures and disintegrates our soul and lying fractures and disintegrates our relationships. Peter is accused again, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He couldn't get them to believe him the first time and uh, he has to get them to believe him because he could be in trouble, right? Otherwise he might die, otherwise his kingdom could be in trouble. And so this time Peter actually takes an oath uses that whole oath system that's out there. It says he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man, he says. In other words, I promise, cross my heart, stick a needle in my eye. Now, we don't know what Peter's oath happened to look like. Did he swear by heaven? Did he swear by Jerusalem? Did he swear by his own head? Maybe he said, as God is my witness, cross my heart, hope to die. Um, but this time the lie is more direct. This time it's not, I don't know what you're talking about. This time it's, I don't know the man. It's also kind of interesting to me that he doesn't want to use Jesus' name when he does this. I don't know the man. And this is how lying works, you know. It gets worse and worse the more I do it. It goes further and further and further into the dark. Lying gets to be more and more of a job to keep the lies covered up. And you know what? The deceptive soul is always a divided soul, always. Part of us has to be hidden. Part of us has to keep being lied about when we deceive. Peter loves Jesus, no question of that. But you know what? Peter is also running from Jesus. This is what we read. It says, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely, 
You are one of them for your accent gives you away. It gets harder and harder to keep covering up and deceiving. You see, Peter, like Jesus, was from the north. He was from Galilee and the people up in Galilee had an accent. Accents are often associated with different status levels. For example, what's a hillbilly accent? What's the status level there? Pretty low, isn't it? But if you have a British accent, you automatically get to add 10 points to your IQ just for having a British accent. Am I right? Now, to people in big city Jerusalem, Galileans, people up north, were hicks. They were hillbillies. They were rednecks. Your accent gives you away, Peter. You're a hillbilly, just like Jesus. You're one of them. You see, the truth is actually hard to keep hidden. If you're hiding the truth, you've got to keep lying. You've got to dig deeper into the dark. Peter's kingdom is being threatened here and he can't let the truth come out or so he thinks. It says, says then that he began to call down curses on himself. This is an NIV translation. They actually, the, the reality is it's unclear whether he was calling down curses on himself or on Jesus. It's unclear. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Oh boy. Peter's cursing now. We don't know exactly what the curse was. Maybe he said, may God strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth. And, or maybe he said, I swear on all that's sacred. I don't know him. I don't love him. I don't follow him and I won't die for him. So, What's clear here is that Peter has actually at this moment just one God and that God is him and he's living in just one kingdom and that is his kingdom, not Jesus' kingdom. You see, when we lie, that's actually the truth about us. We're stepping out of the kingdom that Jesus has called us into and we're basically declaring that, well, we'll I got this, I'll do this my kingdom way. And when we do that, we don't become atheists. That's kind of interesting. It's not like we deny God, we just choose a different God and that God is me. We promote our own kingdom. And when we do that, the rooster crows. It says, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. No, I won't, Jesus. That'll never happen. These guys may be me, no, never, not ever. And then it says he went outside and he wept bitterly. You see, now Peter is about as far away from Jesus as you can get was in the cart courtyard, then he was at the, the gateway and now he's left. And lying will do that to us. Lying will separate us from people we love and people who love us. This is just what lying does. And Peter at this point is broken and it says he's weeping bitterly. He's a sobbing wreck. And here's the, the, the incredible thing about Jesus. This isn't the end of the story, of course. Because you see, the one that Peter betrayed, Jesus, is also the one who said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Peter was comforted. 
It's the upside down kingdom turning the world inside out. Peter learns even through this, this mess of lies, he learns to live in grace. There's a tradition, so we don't know if this is true or not, but there's a tradition that for the rest of Peter's life, whenever he was speaking, if somebody wanted to humiliate him, they would cock-a-doodle-doo, they would give it that action. What do you think that would conjure up in Peter? <laughs> but here's what's interesting. You see, it was precisely in Peter's greatest failure that Peter received the greatest grace. And this is actually how the gospel works. This is how Jesus works. You see, after Jesus was crucified, when the uh, women go to Jesus' tomb and they're going, they, they, they go to his tomb and there's an angel that meets them here and the angel announces Jesus had risen. That was the announcement. And the angel then says to the women, this is in Mark 16, says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why do you think it says his disciples and Peter? That's an interesting way to phrase it. Tell you what I think. I'm just guessing that Peter actually no longer considered himself a disciple. I'm guessing that he wondered that, you know, if he was still wanted or still welcome after his boasting, after what he had done, after his denial, after bragging, after boasting and then denial. And the angel wanted to set the matter straight. Go tell Jesus' disciples and Peter, he said. Hey, Peter, you big fat liar. You're not done. You're still loved. You're forgiven. You're still wanted. There's enough grace at the cross of Jesus for liars. If you want to read about the tender way in which Jesus reinstates and calls Peter back to a life of a discipleship, you can read John 21. That's not part of the message this morning, but it's very wisely and tenderly done the way Jesus calls Peter back to the place of discipleship. It's actually very beautiful. You see, Jesus promises that when we live in the freedom of his kingdom, in the power of the forgiveness that's available at the cross, we receive a new strength we could never generate on our own, you see. And so a disciple, as disciples, we live and love and serve and care and minister, not in our own power, not in our own strength, but in Jesus' power and strength. You see, I'm free to really be me as long as I'm living in Jesus. So let the roosters crow because they're going to. They're going to. I weigh 211 pounds this morning. Just thought you wanted to know. <laughs> you know, it was Peter who wrote these words. He said, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. In other words, be truth tellers. How could he say that? <laughs> he has no basis on which to tell me what I should do, does he? 
And of course he doesn't. But he says that on the basis of what Jesus did for him. You see, you can say those things by dying to yourself, by living in the truth and the love and the forgiveness and the power of Jesus' kingdom. So gang, this week, here's my challenge to you. Ask God to help you die to yourself from all that trivial stuff that matters to you that shouldn't matter at all. Ask God to help you die to yourself so that you can move fully into and live fully out of the kingdom of Jesus Christ so that you can say your kingdom come, your will be done and live in the truth with no spin and no pressure and no manipulation and no hiding. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'll tell you what, living in the truth is really freeing. It really works. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we just confess to you that we are prone to lie. We're prone to make up worlds in which we live where we're better than we are and not as bad as we are. And uh, forgive us for that. God, may your kingdom set us free to love and serve and care in ways for others that we could not otherwise do because we're too concerned about ourselves. But Lord, when we move into your kingdom and live with you as our king, we die to self and we are free, free to live in the truth. Help us with this, Father. Help us to embrace Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life.